For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson with the latest readout video from our Wednesday wake-up email newsletter and some really big news from the world of climate science. By which I don't mean our 5,000 new video subscribers in the last month or our 9 million total views. I mean the confessional essay by Patrick T. Brown, PhD, in the Free Press, entitled, quote, I left out the full truth to get my climate change paper published, end quote. And it's a bombshell that's attracted wide media interest because A, he is a climate scientist, and B, he is not a denier, and C, the paper in question was in Nature, a proudly peer-reviewed publication, and D, as a real scientist, dedicated to following the scientific method as opposed to reaching predetermined results in support of a narrative, he can no longer remain silent. But he had to leave academia to speak out. It's tempting to call it an enormous scandal, but we're going to call it a glorious example of courageous honesty and a chance for a reset by an establishment that has lost its way. Now, Brown has a PhD in Earth and Climate Sciences from Duke University. He lectures at John Hopkins in their Energy Policy and Climate Program, and he's a co-director of the Climate and Energy Team at the Breakthrough Institute. And he argues in the piece in question, that, quote, climate change is an important factor affecting wildfires over many parts of the world, end quote. But he says it's not the only one. So, here's the problem, or a big part of it. Quote, the paper I just published, Climate Warming Increases Extreme Daily Wildfire Growth Risk in California, focuses exclusively on how climate change has affected extreme wildfire behavior. I knew not to try to quantify key aspects other than climate change in my research because it would dilute the story that prestigious journals like Nature and its rival science want to tell." End quote. Now once again, let us insist that his revelations don't mean climate alarmism is a hoax. But then why would he do such a thing? Well, as he explains with a frankness that St. Augustine might envy, quote, it is critically important for scientists to be published in high-profile journals. In many ways, they are the gatekeepers for career success in academia, and the editors of these journals have made it abundantly clear, both by what they publish and what they reject, that they want climate papers that support certain pre-approved narratives, even when those narratives come at the expense of broader knowledge for society." End quote. Now, Brown doesn't state his age in his biography, but he got his PhD in 2016, so you can pretty much work it out for yourself. And you don't have to work out the next bit, because again, he fesses up totally. Quote, As to why I followed the formula, despite my criticisms, the answer is simple. I wanted the research to be published in the highest profile venue possible. End quote. And in this, Brown is not alone. On the contrary, as he says, quote, The first thing the astute climate researcher knows is that his or her work should support the mainstream narrative, namely that the effects of climate change are both pervasive and catastrophic and that the primary way to deal with them is not by employing practical adaptation measures like stronger, more resilient infrastructure, better zoning and building codes, more air conditioning, or, in the case of wildfires, better forest management or undergrounding power lines, but through policies like the Inflation Reduction Act aimed at reducing greenhouse gas emissions." End quote. What then of the powers that be at publications like Nature? Are they not plotting in ways that tend to corrupt younger researchers? Well, yes. But it's not because they're committing fraud. It's because they're true believers who have worked hard and successfully to capture the apparatus of scholarly approval so that it will blare out the warnings that they really do believe are all too vital and urgent. But regardless of the motives, 
the corruption is real. And of course, it extends to their habit of getting their like-minded buddies to do the supposedly immaculate silver bullet peer review that actually just props up this compromised system. Nature smugly bills itself as, quote, a weekly international journal, publishing the finest peer-reviewed research in all fields of science and technology on the basis of its originality, importance, interdisciplinary interest, timeliness, accessibility, elegance, and surprising conclusions, end quote. To which we retort, okay, surprises with the conclusion that the human influence on climate is neither major nor ominous. Not happening. As Brown adds, quote, when I had previously attempted to deviate from the formula, my papers were rejected out of hand by the editors of distinguished journals, and I had to settle for less prestigious outlets, end quote. So, he ruefully admits, quote, I sacrificed contributing the most valuable knowledge for society in order for the research to be compatible with the confirmation bias of the editors and reviewers of the journals I was targeting, end quote. Well, that doesn't sound good, does it? And in fact, and to his credit, to his great credit, he couldn't stand it. In fact, paradoxically, getting into this prestigious journal, as he was aiming to do, broke his career rather than making it because he was a scholar of integrity. And so he quit academia to work for a private institute. Obviously, at this point, nature's in full defensive mode. Its editor has haughtily accused Brown of, quote, poor research practices, end quote, that, quote, are not in line with the standards we set for our journal, end quote which is kind of unconvincing since they did publish it. But it doesn't matter really what they say at this point because the cat is out of the bag. And that means that either climate science reforms itself, along, frankly, with academia more broadly, or it watches an outflux of honest talent and of credibility. We seem to me to be, to coin a phrase, at a tipping point. And now I'm going to interrupt myself briefly to ask you please to help support our work. Because here at the Climate Discussion Nexus, we don't get lavish government grants, we don't get big foundation money, and contrary to what our critics say, we're not in the pocket of the Koch brothers. We're dependent on our viewers and our readers to make a pledge, one time or monthly, big or small, just click here, a cup of coffee a month, that's what it takes to help us keep producing these videos and our newsletter and pushing back against the climate alarmist steamroller. And now, back to me. In the newsletter, we also return to one of the many recurring puzzles on the climate file, which is the growing hostility of environmentalists to nature. For instance, and hat tip Patrick Moore for pointing it out to us, Bill Gates is helping fund a scheme to bury trees to keep carbon out of the air. So now even the natural forest cycle of birth, growth, life, death, and decay is a threat to this brittle, pristine thing called the environment that used to be so dynamic. It's a bit like that plan to electrocute the oceans to make them more alkaline so they absorb more CO2. And don't even get us started on the proposal to engineer humans genetically to make us allergic to meat. Instead, get us started on NASA's Kimberly Miner, who, quote, reveals how she sobbed from climate grief after learning blue oaks would die in her native California, end quote. And incidentally, her piece is also in nature. And yes, we'd get it. You're no longer cool if you don't have some climate anxiety-related syndrome. But at the risk of appearing indifferent to the misery of others, we have to note that no blue oak extinction is in prospect. Not at all. What had her in tears was just that, quote, it was probably too late for half the blue oaks affected by California's drought in the region in which we were working. 
Because of years of ongoing drought, many of the trees would not recover from the long-term water loss and would die. The next morning, I sat outside our science team meeting and cried, end quote. And her tears may irrigate the ground and possibly even save a tree nearby. But if not, as we pointed out repeatedly, California has records of alternating massive floods and droughts for centuries. And doubtless, during the droughts and during the floods, many oaks died. Nature is in fact red in tooth and claw, and sometimes it's brown and crackly in plant. But the point is, the rest didn't die, and the species continued to flourish. Minor brushes all this history aside with, quote, even within my lifetime, the climate system has changed noticeably, end quote, which seems to mean about the last 35 years, and apparently nobody told her that weather's variable. But, as Bjorn Lomborg recently tweeted, quote, study shows that people who possess more overall environmental knowledge or climate-specific knowledge experience less climate change anxiety and less knowledge, more anxiety, end quote. So, we googled, and Wikipedia gave us this reassuring information, quote, Quercus douglasii, known as blue oak, is a species of oak endemic to California, common in the coast ranges and the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. It is California's most drought-tolerant deciduous oak, and is a dominant species in the blue oak woodland ecosystem. It is occasionally known as mountain oak and iron oak, end quote. Whoa, dude. California's most drought-tolerant deciduous oak, endemic, a dominant species, almost as if it evolved to weather drought. And indeed, our further research even suggested that the fire cycle is important to what ecologists call recruitment of new blue oak. So, Dr. Miner, do not cry us an atmospheric river. Nature already has those, and the oaks are going to make it. In the newsletter, we also mock the millennial who wrote, quote, world's first wind-powered cargo ship set sail with giant metal wings, Pixis Ocean, end quote. This person has never heard of the Cuddy Sark, stately Spanish galleons, or even Treasure Island? Shiver me timbers and belay that panic. Still, all climate news remains bad. Hence, the Weather Network thunders, quote, severe storm risk in central Canada means end in sight to extreme heat, end quote, also known as it will rain and cool off. But where's the fun in that version? As with NBC's, quote, fall on hold as temperatures soar across the U.S., end quote, rather than a headline like, yay, summer lasts into September. Also, from the headlines that say time to move on file, NBC brings us both, quote, Adelia brings fifth highest tide ever recorded in Charleston, end quote, and, quote, Hurricane Adelia could have caused even more damage to Florida, end quote. Yeah, and we could have won the lottery. Too bad we didn't buy a ticket. In the newsletter, we also sing a sarcastic song about Cory Doctorow in the New York Times' opinion today, swooping on the chaos at the aggressively pagan Burning Man Party Art Festival to complain about the, quote, unprecedented rain, end quote, as proof of climate change. See, normally it's horribly dry and hot out there in the Nevada desert with the sun beating down, which apparently is also proof of climate change given that deserts are normally, uh, uh, well, quote, this is the second burning man in a row that had challenging weather conditions, end quote. Yeah, it's in the desert. They're known for those. Doctorow even writes that, quote, burning man is an event where intense, hostile conditions have typically been a feature, not a bug. In such a harsh place, there's a delightful contrast when you stumble across fun, beauty, and camaraderie, or better yet, when you create these elements together. 
But now, thanks to rising global temperatures, the Black Rock Desert could be shifting from almost uninhabitable to totally incompatible with human activity. It wouldn't be the first place to go through this change, and it won't be the last, end quote. Not that he names any others or specifies the borderline condition. But anyway, lost in the desert always meant about to die. It's old news. In fact, it's so old it's not news. But speaking of the hot sun, a CNN piece about clouds on Neptune blurts out something that is normally stifled by climate orthodoxy. And you'd think Neptune would be safe from earthly kerfuffles, right? Since it's way the heck and gone from old Sol, it's about 2.8 billion miles or 30 astronomical units away from the center of the solar system. But actually, quote, scientists have determined the ice giant's diminished clouds may indicate that shifts in their abundance are in sync with the solar cycle, according to a recent study published in the journal Icarus, end quote. And yes, clouds have a huge influence on temperature here on Earth, one that climate models handle exceptionally badly. So, if Mr. Sun is affecting them on Neptune, which gets just 0.1% of the sunlight we do, guess what's happening here? Well, actually, something different. Since a more active sun seems to mean more clouds on Neptune, but fewer clouds here. Regardless, if the sun is affecting clouds and clouds are affecting temperature, then there's less to blame on CO2, and that's going to get you in trouble. We also cite the Manhattan Contrarian's assertion that the elites directing the energy transition really have no idea what they're doing. He takes square aim at the World Economic Forum, the infamous gnomes of Davos, but not as plotters on a Dan Brown or Jason Bourne level. Instead, he writes that a key speaker discussing battery storage thought GWH meant gigawatts per hour, not gigawatt hours. And then he and his colleagues got the amount of energy storage required for net zero by 2050 off by a factor of roughly 650. Now, perhaps you'd rather be ruled by rogues than fools. But when the contrarian asks, quote, is it possible that these people are completely incompetent and have no idea what they're doing, end quote, the answer is a quavering Yes. In the newsletter, we also continue our enlightening tour through the officially forbidden paper on extreme weather, this time with respect to floods, which do not seem to be increasing, and based on the late lamented medieval warm period, might not be expected to increase if temperature does go up. In the newsletter, we also continue our look at Bjorn Lomborg's massive 2020 study of everything that's known, believed, hypothesized, guessed and outright made up regarding how climate change will affect the world in the 21st century. In this case, the analysis called integrated assessment that suggests that small amounts of warming don't do much harm and actually help in many places. Even the IPCC's own models say so, though they don't like to publicize that fact. But, according to Lomberg, policies to fight warming will cause a lot of harm according to the same computers that alarmists rely on. So once again, they've got it backwards. And as for poor California, a piece from the CO2Science.org archive looks at the strange phenomenon that in the late 20th century, its summers cooled remarkably, which apparently goes by the name of global warming. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I self-published to avoid the censors, so please send money. (laughs) 